Welcome to the Goodman Turnback Museum podcast, where we bring you lectures, readings, and discussions that expand on the Goodman Turnback Museum's commitment to scholarship, creativity, and inclusion. This week, we bring you an artist lecture by Tomi Arai. This event was sponsored by Professor Tyrone Mitchell of the Queen's College Art Department. Tomi Arai is an activist, artist, philosopher, poet, historian, printmaker, installation artist, and public artist who has worked collaboratively with community groups for over 30 years. Challenging our assumptions about what it meant to be both Japanese and American within the larger national discourse on race and identity. The captions below the portraits, Japanese Jewish American, Japanese Chinese American, and in this slide, second generation Japanese African American, were presented as counterpoints to the labels deceitful, monstrous, sneaky, and sly printed under the glass stereotypes. Shards of glass printed with images of historic events such as the Vietnam War underscored the impact of these world events on the lives and identities of Asians in America. In revisiting this installation years later, I'm struck by how deeply invested I was in the creation of an authentic space for myself within a community that felt fragmented and consistently misrepresented. Addressing the unique experience of Japanese Americans living on the East Coast in the US, framing an American identity was as much about framing my own identity as it was about questioning fixed notions of race and constructing more fluid spaces of belonging. Today, we take the cultural complexity that defines our communities for granted, but in the early 1970s, we were actively rejecting our differences, embracing the label of Asian American, and subverting the notion that Orientals were a monumental, uh, monolithic yellow race by celebrating our sameness. In 1972, Yellow Pearl, an unbound collection of poetry, music, and art about Asian American identity was published and has been recognized as influencing a generation of Asian American artists and writers. As a young artist still finding my voice, my experience working on the Yellow Pearl Project had a profound impact on my views about art and art making. Meeting in a basement in Chinatown for a year with young Asian Americans from across the city was my first experience with collaboration. Yellow Pearl became a manifesto for the Asian American movement, validating our common experiences as Asians working across national and cultural differences to affect social change. For many of us, it would be an empowering first step toward building the kind of alternative spaces and cultural institutions we believed would reflect our common goals and vision for the future. In the 1970s, I also painted murals on the Lower East Side with teenagers, local artists, and activists Painting murals was a way to take art out of the studio and demystify the art-making process by bringing art onto the streets of the community. Everything from planning, design, style, content, and fabrication was decided collectively. 
The murals were large, visible statements about the neighborhood, and without the benefit of the internet or social media or bookstores, we relied in large part on our own recollection of events to create and retell stories about our lives. Through these collaborative community-based projects, I developed sustained relationships with grassroots organizations that grounded my artistic practice in research and education. Organizations like the Museum of Chinese in America anchored my exploration of community to Chinatown, still a locus for Asians living in New York. As the first artist in residence at the museum, I mined the archives of the museum and began a 30-year relationship with this organization. And with help from the staff and membership, produced prints and banners about the history of New York Chinatown and created art-based oral history projects inspired by the diverse stories of community residents. At the heart of this narrative lies a human life was originally created for the Whitney Museum's exhibition, Sightseeing, Tourism and Travel in Contemporary Art. This piece was based entirely on historical material found in the Museum of Chinese in America's archives. A young woman's face embedded in a map of Chinatown is framed by historical images of the Chinese that appear in US newspapers, popular sheet music, cartoons, magazines, and tour guidebooks filled with racist and erroneous information about Chinese culture. Gee, it's so dark. Sorry. There is a map around her that you can't really see. At the at, I'm sorry. Um, by inverting the positions of insider and outsider, the young woman at the heart of this narrative challenges us to reflect carefully on the ways we see and are seen. Robert Bedoya, in his essay on cultural and civic belonging, stresses the importance of understanding how race, class, poverty, and discrimination, as well as acts of displacement, removal, and containment, shape our understanding of place and placemaking in the built environment. A creative and radical placemaking with artists at its center must be able to embrace the personal memories cultural histories, and imagined spaces of communities that are struggling for inclusion and survival. In 2013, I was invited to develop an installation for the Museum of Chinese in America's galleries based on oral histories we had conducted with residents, merchants, and neighborhood leaders about the rapid changes they had witnessed in their community. At the core of these conversations, were the ever-present issues of gentrification and displacement and the deeply felt concerns of a neighborhood currently under threat of erasure. Portraits of New York Chinatown was initiated as an oral history project in collaboration with scholar Lena Z. Through a process of community curation, these overlapping histories took the form of a composite of maps, people, and sites where streets and avenues cross and recross imaginary boundaries. I'm a little uh, behind here. In this bird's eye view of Chinatown, the viewer is asked to telescope back and forth from a series of portraits in place to a fractured grid that suggests that change is an inevitable part of the New York City cityscape. The larger context for our project, of course, was the intensified gentrification of the last two decades across the city. 
As New York's oldest ethnic enclave, Chinatown has experienced the full impact of redevelopment brought about by global and private sector investment, completely transforming whole city blocks and displacing small businesses and the working poor who at one time represented the core community. By asking residents of Chinatown to share their stories about the human impact of gentrification, we wanted to engage them in the preservation of important sites and spaces embedded with meaning. In this case, this is Confucius Plaza, um, one of the few spaces of affordable housing in Chinatown. In the process of engaging in a form of social recall, we hope to build our collective understanding of larger global forces at play in seemingly localized landscapes. In my artistic and social practice, the process of collecting these memories about the spaces we live in opened the door to placemaking. Actually, I've been thinking about that word, placemaking, because um, it's used by developers a lot. So I'm trying to substitute it with the word placekeeping. Placekeeping projects that extended well beyond the Asian community. Public projects that activate and celebrate historic sites of meaning have also been ways to give visual form to events that have had a profound impact on communities of color in the United States. In 1997, I was commissioned to create Renewal, a 38-foot silkscreen mural that memorialized the discovery of an African burial ground beneath the construction site of a new federal building in Lower Manhattan. As the only known pre-revolutionary cemetery for enslaved Africans in America, the burial ground had enormous import for the African-American community. Designated as a historic landmark in 1997, the burial ground was widely considered one of the most important archaeological finds in the country. In designing Renewal, it was my, which is the name of the mural, it was my objective to create a meditative space in the lobby of the federal building that would encourage passers-by to reflect on the lives of the people who were buried there. The image of a mountain rising from the water, a sacred symbol in many religions and cultures, also refers to the history of New York as a thriving port of entry for the British slave trade. The process of creating the mural was similar to producing a large silkscreen monoprint, building a visual narrative by printing hundreds of historical images across the surface of the canvas. Through a series of overlapping images, a historic timeline was replaced with a more layered reading of events, resembling a process of urban archaeology. The viewer is required to dig through layers of historical fragments to discover a previously untold story about the enslaved Africans and their contributions to colonial New York. As a shared history of the city and nation, Renewal brought together all the diverse communities who live in New York, addressing slavery as a crime against humanity, against all people, opened up a space in which it was possible to have multiple perspectives of the story of the African diaspora in the Americas. Projects like the burial ground encouraged me to continue working in other communities, 
across racial and cultural boundaries, using art as a way to identify the junctures where points of unity can be established. Creative placekeeping enables me to participate in the construction of actual markers of change that can restore our collective histories and remap our environment. The Chinese in the Americas project initiated by the Miami-Dade Community College in South Florida was one of the first projects to document and archive the migration experiences of Chinese Latinos and Chinese Caribbeans in Miami and New York. Students, historians, artists, and community activists participated in gathering over 40 oral histories conducted with Chinese whose countries of origin included Cuba, Peru, Guatemala, Mexico, Panama, the Dominican Republic, Jamaica, Trinidad, and Haiti. In 1998, the project culminated in an installation at the Bronx Museum of the Arts. Seen in the background, double happiness, the Chinese character for marriage, is used to symbolize the bicultural experiences of the Chinese diaspora. In this installation, silkscreen portraits are arranged around tables at a wedding banquet, and excerpts from oral histories are printed onto the backs of the guest chairs, like fragments of conversations overheard in a banquet hall. An excerpt from an interview with Richard Fung, a Chinese from Trinidad, reads, what I know of being Chinese comes from my life in the Caribbean, and what I know of the Caribbean is shaped by my experience of being Chinese there. Whether reminiscing about the past or sharing dreams of a brighter future, these voices from La Colonia China represent the global mix of languages and cultures that can be found in Chinese communities across America and the world. In this mix, we are asked to consider the Americas as a place where hybridity is the norm a space where identity has less to do with being than becoming. Today, every North American, Latin American, and Caribbean country is home to, the people, to people of Chinese ancestry, people whose family legacies spread across time, continents, and cultures, converging in ways that show us how newness enters the world. Newness <laughs> enters the world. Reflecting on the emergence of these new global citizens, Salman Rushdie wrote, the effect of mass migrations has been the creation of radically new types of human beings, people who root themselves in ideas rather than places, in memories as much as in material things, people who have been obliged to define themselves because they are so defined by others, by their otherness people in whose deepest selves strange fusions occur, unprecedented unions between what they were and where they find themselves. The migrant suspects reality having experienced several ways of being. He understands their illusory nature. To see things plainly, you have to cross a frontier. And uh, from Edward Said, he asks, what happens to a landless people? What do you preserve of yourselves? What do you abandon? Our truest reality is expressed in the way we cross over from one place to another, from there to here.
so um, that's sort of past work. And uh, what I wanted to do was actually share two projects that I'm doing uh, concurrently. Um, and they're actually, uh, I thought, representative of sort of opposite sides of the spectrum of public art. Um, and I understand that you've been actually going through some of the um, phases, I guess, of getting approval of planning and designing with whatever agencies you're working with um, to create projects. And uh, I thought this might be helpful. Um, so please feel free to ask questions if you'd like. Um, I'm just going to share with you uh, first a project I'm doing for the San Francisco Arts Commission. Um, they are building a subway in San Francisco. I know when I heard that, I thought, why would they do that? <laughs> of all cities in the world, you could, you know, uh, to do something underground, it just seems uh, kind of strange. But um, they have a huge tr uh, problem with lack of mass transit in, in um, the center of the city. So they're building a, a new subway system that connects uh, Union Square with Chinatown. And um, uh, it, it actually, uh, I, I don't know if you remember, there was an earthquake many years ago that destroyed parts of the Oakland Bridge, the off-ramp, which went into Chinatown. So there was no uh, way to get into Chinatown except to drive, and that caused huge traffic jams. So they had an open call for um, proposals, and um, actually they started off with an open call uh, for and, uh, letters of interest. And that was actually in 2009. And I was notified in 2012, <laughs> three years later, that I was shortlisted. So this, is, this gives you an idea of how long this process takes. Um, and at that time, uh, the subway hadn't yet been built. And um, in many cases, uh, I know that in New York, for instance, the Percent for Art program um, likes to bring artists in at the very beginning of construction. Um, but very often, you might be asked to create artwork in pre-existing institutions like Queens College. Uh, so it, you know, it would begin with a site visit, and you would walk around the facility and get a sense of who uses that space. In this case, the subway hadn't even broken ground yet, so this is what they gave artists, I think there were 15 or so, to look at. And um, the purpose being that there were different spaces and sites that were designated for wayfinding art and also for what they call monumental art. And it was up to the artist to decide what they wanted to do and where they wanted to do it. And so taking a look at this um, simulation of what it might be like to get in, go into this subway, um, you can see that there were a lot of spaces. This tower here was actually a, an elevator that they had designated as a site for public art. Um, these uh, circular walls were um, sites that were set, set aside for monumental art. 
there's an elevator at the bottom of this escalator that um, is actually the bottom part of that big tower uh, that would also have been designated for architectural glass. And at either end of this platform, there was the possibility to create art um, for the platform walls. So uh, that was the first iteration <laughs> of this design. Um, they, over the course of the almost four years since the beginning of this project, um, they have redesigned this station three or four times. This, these are the actual spaces that they designated for public art. Um, at the very top, number one is what they call the headhouse of the station, and there were walls at the very top of the parapet that they called out for architectural glass. And then as you go down into the station, there were different sites that they designated. Um, they subsequently, since that drawing was uh, distributed, redesigned the, the station and included a plaza on the top of the uh, headhouse. Uh, and they were actually using the High Line as a model for this. I mean, people, uh, I mean, it's not anywhere as long or as, um, you know, would be as well used, but um, they were very taken with the way that uh, New York had used space above ground for a park. Um, and uh, when I was selected, uh, part of my job was to meet with the community uh, as well as the architects and all the various different community um, development corporations and tenants that were involved and hold a series of meetings. Um, and these were some of the questions that um, we discussed. Uh, in fact, out of the five or so projects that were um, commissioned by the San Francisco Arts Commission, uh, I was the only one who had to do this uh, for some reason because it was Chinatown and because of the historic nature of the community being a very contested space. And uh, they were just super careful to get everybody on board, um, which isn't to say that everybody agreed. Um, and in fact, it was, I had to do this totally through translation. So there was another layer of, um, I guess, uh, difficulty because of the difference in language. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that it's been this ongoing process. Um, I've met with uh, different panels of community activists and um, cultural uh, leaders uh, at least four times. Um, and uh, this is one. <laughs> iteration design. I did at least 10 of them uh, for the parapet wall. Um, and these are actual portraits of residents that I had photographed. Uh, there's a school directly across the street and I set up a project where I um, invited parents and children to be photographed for inclusion in the mural. Um, these are some of the site drawings that I did to show the placement of the work. And uh, 
a, uh, they reconfigured the platform walls and actually asked me if I would design two works for their 30 by 18 feet for the either side of the platform walls. And um, this is one of the designs that um, I had uh, submitted that has to do with the history of um, the Chinatown and San Francisco, um, the city. And uh, the, uh, I guess uh, I forgot to say that these are all going to be done in architectural glass. Um, so uh, we're now at the fabrication point where I'm, I'm talking to fabricators. Halfway through the project, Obama <laughs> made this big speech um, uh, about infrastructure. And he declared that that would be the city, the country's number one priority and that um, he set aside billions of dollars to improve infrastructure in the, uh, across the country and that included anything that had to do with transportation. So the, it, the project became federalized. Um, it was formerly a city project and then the federal government took over and um, that created I can't even tell you how much bureaucracy that created. <laughs> but the contract went from like 10 pages to 50 pages because there is so much in there about um, uh, the, the bidding process for fabrication and how it has to be completely transparent and you can't have organized crime involved and just one thing after another. But these are sort of things that you never think you're going to have to deal with as an artist, and suddenly, you know, these are what determines like what the project is going to look like, and how big it is, and all these other factors. So this is a an example of a pretty straight-up commission for public art, um, and I would just say that uh, if you're at all interested in pursuing this when you graduate. Um, you know, the bottom line is that people are selected for these projects based on whether the panelists like your work, you know, whatever you do. Um, it's, it, it always comes back to the kind of work that you do, but um, where you ultimately decide to place that work, how you go about um, uh, trying to find opportunities, is pretty critical. So there are all kinds of artist registries that you can submit work to, and you don't have to have any experience at all having done public art, because in some cases you don't even make the work. You're, you know, you do the design and hand it over to a fabricator, and that person, who whether it's a glass artist or a mosaic artist or um, even uh, if you were doing some kind of sculpture, um, takes that design and translate it, translates it into the medium. So you don't have to be expert at knowing how to construct or make or fabricate the work. It just has to be your idea, your, your, um, your conceptual idea for that site um, that, that makes a difference. So, there are a lot of registries that are present for art programs in a lot of different states that have um, open calls. They send out uh, you know, requests for submissions. So you just need to find out where those um, repositories you know, of different 
uh, artists, lists of artists and rosters exist. Um, so that's one project. So I was going to show you, um, actually, uh, talk a little bit about the project that I am doing for the Blade of Grass residency or fellowship, which is a completely different kind of work in public space um, with a huge emphasis on what I call process um, and engagement. And uh, you could even say that the final product is secondary to the way that you collaborate and work with and listen to the communities that um, you hope your work will uh, eventually reside in. So I'm seen in the middle with my um, uh, fellow collaborators. We created a, a collective called the Chinatown Art Brigade. And uh, our, our uh, project involves working uh, very closely with a grassroots organization in Chinatown called the Committee Against Anti-Asian Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence, Organizing Asian Communities. It's a very long <laughs> name, CAV. Uh, they're like a 30-year uh, organi grassroots organization that's been doing tenants' rights work um, and uh, have been doing all kinds of work around social justice issues in Chinatown. Um, and the proposal was to do these um, large-scale projections onto the buildings in Chinatown about gentrification. Uh, so one of our partners for this project is this uh, really wonderful group called the Illuminator. And if, have you, has anyone here heard of them? Um, they are a collective. Uh, I can say here that they, they're founded by um, an artist named Mark Reed, but uh, they, they prefer to be anonymous. Um, and I wanted to show you actually a video that they put together of a piece they did for the Brooklyn Museum. Um, there was a little article in the Times about it a couple of, maybe last week. Oh, so I'm going to hope that it... Okay. Let's see. So this is something, I, I'm showing this to you because this idea of doing these large-scale projections is not new. Um, but in fact, I think it's, it's become quite popular because it's a completely environmentally friendly, low-cost way to do something in public that also engages people um, and gets your message across very um, clearly. Uh, what this video includes is a program called the People's Pad, which is this interactive real-time element that we are also going to be using in Chinatown. Um, so I thought, I thought it might be interesting to share this with you. Thank you. Tyrone Mitchell and the Queen's College Art Department. To learn about upcoming events at the Goodwin Turnback Museum, visit gtmuseum.org, follow us on Twitter at Goodwin Turnback, and find us on Facebook. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. This podcast is a production of the Goodwin Turnback Museum. 
was created by Joseph Pastner and Shah Khan, and the music was composed by Federico Zagera, all students at Queen's College, CUNY.